Bill numbers in Congress are used to help keep thousands of proposals organized and moving through the system. While it remains to be seen whether a transportation infrastructure package will happen this year, the idea at least has a reservation on Capitol Hill in the form of a number, a very high number, H.R. 2. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said recently she was holding the slot for a bill that would drive economic growth through rebuilding America's roads, bridges, and other transportation facilities. Of course, a number is not the same as a bill, but at the very least, it's new recognition that something needs to get done. Congressman Albio Sires, Democrat from New Jersey, said last month what most suspect. Passage of a plan isn't about desire, it's about how to pay the bill. There are many ways to fund projects, whether it's private partnership, public partnerships, but we have to get this mentality that we're doing the right things for America and stop this nonsense that we just can't seem to work together. You know, I've been in this committee now 10 years, and I've been working on this tunnel for all those times, and, and, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. And we don't seem to be coming together. So... We can come up with many ways of trying to funding, whether it's a gas tax or mileage tax or whatever, but hey, the real problem here is trying to get everybody to work together. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. While Congress debates the way forward, industries that build the projects watch intently, waiting for action. We're talking with the leaders of two trade groups keeping an eye on Washington. Each of them in the concrete business. Both belong to the North American Concrete Alliance. The alliance is a coalition of 12 concrete-related associations formed in 2004. The group tackles industry-wide concerns and initiatives in the areas of research, safety, education, and government affairs. Together, NACA members employ 600,000 people and contribute $100 billion annually to the U.S. economy. They work in all 50 states. Ty Gable joins us later, but first we hear from Richard Meller, President and CEO of the American Concrete Pressure Pipe Association. I think I know what a pipe looks like, but I'm not sure if you stood me in front of one of yours that I would know it's concrete pressure pipe. So for those of us who don't really know the difference... Give us the 101 on that. Well, most of the pipe that we are producing today has a steel cylinder, a thin steel cylinder that is encased in either cement mortar or concrete. And so the pipe on either end is normally connected to adjacent pipe using a gasket joint. And these joints are very similar to the quick disconnect joints you might see on a pool cleaner or a hose where you have a small gasket and a little groove and you've got a bell fitting that flips over that. We use the same technology, only obviously much larger. And so the pipe can be engaged in the field without any welding, and they can be very rapidly engaged. You know, you simply lubricate that gasket and flip the uh, spigot end into the bell into the pipe that's already in the ground. So when you look at the pipe, what you're going to see on the outside is generally a cement mortar or a concrete. But in the inside, most of these pipes have a steel cylinder. Now, for lower-pressure pipelines up to a maximum of 55 PSI, we do have a standard for non-cylinder pressure pipes. And there have been non-cylinder pre-stress pipes manufactured in the past, 
but normally the man hours it takes to make those pipes doesn't make up for the cost of the steel cylinder to put it in there. So most of the pre-stress pipes made today is in the United States has a steel cylinder in it also. And you said the kind of pipe that you represent doesn't leak. That is correct. You make it properly and install it properly, and it is 100% watertight. So other 100% pipe... 100% airtight. So other pipe does leak then? Well, when I say leak, I would caution that. You may say seep. How about that? If your concrete is not dense enough, then it's possible for you to have some seepage through the pipe wall. In fact, in years past, when some of our producer members produced a non-cylinder pressure pipe, they would have to pressure test the concrete to make sure that it was watertight. And sometimes you would have a little seep coming through the concrete. And if you left it under pressure overnight, the concrete has self-healing abilities. And so oftentimes those leaks would completely heal up. So that I would expect probably happens on pipe that does not have a steel cylinder, but it doesn't always happen. And for our type of applications, we really want to make sure that the pipe is watertight all the time. One of the differences between a pressure pipe and a gravity pipe, you know, most of your sewer pipes, whether they're storm sewers for moving storm water from one side of the highway to the other, or sewer pipes, all of those pipelines are going downhill. And so you don't have pressure, don't have significant pressure behind the force of the water. But if we have leaks on pressure pipe, then obviously you've got a little water jet out there that's just squirting away at the ground around the pipeline. And so you're going to end up with a big hole, even though you might just have a small leak. So it's very important for us on pressure pipelines to have them watertight. How much pressure pipe is in service today? Do you know? Whoa, boy. It's been a long time since I've seen some statistics on this. And part of the reason for that is that the companies individually hold a lot of their information fairly close to the vest. But I know that when I worked at one of the major suppliers for the primary three types of pressure pipes that are produced today, those three types of pipe would stretch nearly uh, from pretty much across the Pacific Ocean, however far that is. That's a Um, long way. (laughs) And that, that was for that one producer of pipe. And there were two other producers that were older on the East Coast and one that was older on the West Coast. And so, you know, it's probably circled the earth a time or two. That's a lot and these of are large diameter pipes. One of the things about concrete pressure pipe is that you don't make it too much for small diameters. In the past, we did make a lot of pipe that was a 10 and 12 inch diameter, and it was used for kind of fittings type work in power plants or paper mills or that sort of thing. A lot of that pipe has now been converted over to plastics or ductile iron, but still we have many, many miles of pipe diameters. Concrete pressure pipe is very competitive from about 20 inches and larger. And when I say on larger, we can make it literally as big as you want it to be. Given that your members' pipe is used, as you said earlier, for water and wastewater projects, you must have been pleased with last year's passage of the Water Resources Development Act. That was a very important thing to us. One of the primary areas where the federal government can help with water development was in the state revolving funds, and that was reauthorized for the first time in a long time. As it turns out, for our applications, most of your water utilities are self-funded by bonds and that sort of thing. And so the federal government doesn't 
ordinarily play a big role in that, but they can. If the states have the ability to leverage the funding from the federal government, then that's really a big benefit to the water utilities and obviously indirectly to us. So we were very, very happy to see that. The work that the Corps of Engineers does sometimes affects us, sometimes does not. They do a lot of general waterway work and not always associated with water supply. But having that state revolving fund be authorized was a very big deal. Are a lot of the projects that eventually would get appropriated via this act, it's authorizing legislation, so there's another step or two before money actually gets spent. But are a lot of those projects going to involve concrete pressure pipe? It's pretty much diameter dependent. If they're smaller, then no. But if they're 20 inches and larger, then concrete pressure pipe is definitely in the mix. The Water Resources Development Act was about $10.5 billion to $11 billion worth of projects being authorized, or spending being authorized. The transportation infrastructure package has been estimated in the range of $200 billion up to a trillion dollars, so quite a bit larger roads, bridges, those sorts of things. Right. Do your members get work in those projects too, or are those separate from what you do? Well, all of our members not only produce concrete pressure pipe, but they also have the ability to produce reinforced concrete pipe, which is commonly used for storm sewer applications. And in just about any major transportation infrastructure, you're going to have to handle water and make sure that water is not interfering with that infrastructure that's being built. And so for the pipelines that are going to be going underneath the roadways or whatever, in those applications, our members do have facilities for producing that kind of pipeline as well. So those are also very important for our members, even though that's not the product that I commonly represent. I don't know if this is ever going to happen, but we shall see. Concrete pressure pipe could play a role in transportation going forward. I have spent 25 years or more investigating and trying to develop applications for freight pipelines. And in a freight pipeline, if we're going to put a pipeline underground and you want it to carry something else, like something on a rail, for instance, you may be familiar with the Hyperloop application that's being proposed. In applications like that, a watertight pipeline, an airtight pipeline is going to be required. And if anything like that begins to develop, then concrete pressure pipe could definitely play a role. Well, you said earlier that you could make a pressure pipe as big as you wanted to, right? So that would work. You could put a train in there, a a subway. I would think that probably the biggest that you would want to do, one of the things that happens here is that you have a crossover point between the maximum diameter and the cost-effectiveness of the line. But for instance, for these hyperloop applications, if you're looking at a pipeline that's maybe 12 feet in diameter or 15 feet in diameter, definitely could be made and installed and would be less expensive than, for instance, a steel pipe alternate. Well, that's fun. I didn't think we would get a chance to talk about the future at all, but sounds like it's always possibility. Oh, it's definitely a possibility. Definitely a possibility. And when you talk about these things, you know, particularly on the hyperloop as an application, You know, the Hyperloop, they're talking about these pods or whatever you want to call them, traveling through these pipelines at multiple hundreds of miles an hour, maybe 500 miles an hour. 
Well, the pipeline has to, first of all, be evacuated as much as possible. So you need a pipeline that can handle a complete vacuum. And then originally when Elon Musk was talking about putting these things up, he was talking about having them above ground. Well, he hadn't thought it through very well. What are you going to do when you come to any kind of structure? Or what are you going to do when you come to a power line or something like that? Are you going to arch over that thing, you know, and you have to do it in such a fashion with such small radius of of curvature that you're not making the people sick who are trying to ride inside this thing. So you would have long, long arches or anything like that. Much easier, much faster to put these things underground. Now, when you're in areas of urban development, you may have to go fairly deeply, and those would be tunnels, and you would be lining with a tunnel liner that is watertight. But when you're going across country, it is much less expensive to cut and bury the pipelines than it is to tunnel. And in those installations, that's where I think concrete pressure pipes would play a major role. It's like being a roll of bills at a bank teller with a vacuum tube. Pretty much, yes, that sort of thing. <laughs> that's kind of how it works, only much faster and much bigger, and it'd be exciting. It'd be exciting. Well, if that ever happens, we'll be thinking about concrete pressure pipe. Absolutely. Yeah, probably will be part of that. When it comes to the need for infrastructure investment in general, what's your best argument for spending the dollars on projects here in the United States? Well, you just can't let things rot like we've let them rot. I'm sure someone so far on one of these podcasts has talked about the American Society of Civil Engineers infrastructure report card, and by and large, it's terrible. Pipeline systems are somewhere around a D, I don't remember off the top of my head, D or D plus for both water and wastewater. Then you get into highways and other applications and about the best grade we get anywhere is something like a C plus. So we just can't let the country rot. We need to be spending the money over here in order to be competitive. I used to be a transportation lobbyist, a lobbyist for transportation infrastructure. And the whole purpose there is to continue to drive the economy to make our goods easier to deliver. You want to be able to have a way for people to have a high quality of life, and you want need to be able to have all the essentials of life. That's where water delivery and sewage delivery comes in. And then you need to be able to produce goods and be able to get those goods out to whoever is going to buy them, wherever they are in the world. And so all of that is going to require top-grade infrastructure, a top-grade transportation infrastructure, and actually all infrastructure, including power, for that matter. So having kind of sat on our laurels for these decades that we've sat on our laurels, I mean, there have been incremental improvements every so often, but so much of, especially pipe, has been underground, so it's out of sight, out of mind. And so you have many, many pipelines that are down there that have been in use for 50 to 100 to 150 years. And all right, they've served and they've done very, very well, but we do have to get out there and make sure that they're going to continue to do well in the future. And the only way to do that is to spend some money to be able to evaluate them all and make the repairs when you need them instead of when you have to, when some catastrophe is happening because we don't have water or we've got a big hole in the ground and people can't move around. Like Miller, Ty Gable represents a group of companies working to support the nation's infrastructure needs. He's president of the National Precast Concrete Association. Who are your members and what do they make? Our members are the manufacturers of precast concrete products in North America. We have 
members in all 50 U.S. states and nine Canadian provinces. And basically what these firms do is manufacture precast concrete products. And these are products for the, primarily for infrastructure, but for water conveyance, water and wastewater, transportation industries, utility industries, and then also some above ground products for architectural and, and the building industries. So that's basically what our guys make. Our guys make somewhere close to 200 different products that are precast concrete products. That's a lot. It is. So precast is pretty common in construction then. That's what it's telling me. Oh, very much so, particularly after World War II. It became necessary to build quickly. And the, the benefits of precast concrete is that it is a product that is manufactured in a climate-controlled environment. It is allowed to come to strength and then ship to the job site when it is ready to be installed and then is installed modularly in the job site, which saves a lot of time. So you get all the benefits of concrete that is completely cured and ready to go and the benefits of the modularity of the product in that they're installed piece by piece and phased into the construction. Two things happen there. It reduces the disruption on the job site. But secondly, you can schedule it and install it when you need it, which saves a ton of time in the installation of the product on the job site. So precast concrete really came into its own right after World War II because of those two things. And also, a lot of people don't know this, but precast concrete is and has been since World War II the fastest growing segment of the concrete industry. Wow. I don't know that people even in the business know that. Yeah, it's, uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but we see examples of it every day where specifiers will use precast and as a result will get an excellent quality product installed and save a lot of money due to the time saving. Well, I was going to ask you that. With the time being cut down on the use or by the use of the product, it would seem that, you know, because time is money, there are dollars to be saved on any project where you are using precast. Absolutely. You've listed many reasons why it's so popular. Did you leave anything out? <laughs> well, one of the things about precast concrete that is a real strength is that specifiers are generally able to standardize. So, in other words, they can make each piece fit and have the same dimensions and the same performance, piece after piece after piece. And then when you put in a good, strong quality control program in the plant that takes into uh, consideration lean and, and all of the effects of, of quality, you just end up getting a much better product that is designed specifically for a specific use, the right dimensions, the right fit. And so the consistency is a big deal, okay? And what you want is the same result every time, and you get that with precast. What's the forecast for precast? Well, every year in November, we publish uh, something that we affectionately refer to as the precast forecast. And when we came out with it last November, we basically were calling for a 2 to 3% increase over 2018. And 2018 was a very strong year. We're planning to put in place in 2019, we're projecting about 21.4 
billion dollars in precast concrete products. That's a big number. It's a good number, but the good news is that it is a single-digit growth year to year, as you know from looking at this and talking to a PCA's very able economist, Ed Sullivan. You know, double-digit growth is great, and you love it, but it is very, very hard to manage. So single-digit growth is solid and good, but easier to manage. Okay, so what you don't want is to have double-digit growth, and now you can't get it built, you can't get it stored, you can't get it shipped, you know, and all those crazy things that happen when you're just going gangbusters like that. I would prefer to have an economy that has a good single-digit growth steady year to year, and that's what we're calling for for 2019. Now, in 2020, it is possible that we'll see a little bit of a cooling of that and 2021 also. And and there are some dark clouds on the horizon that's causing that. And primarily what that is, is the residential sector, the single family home market is cooling a bit. And that's being influenced by the fact that first time home buyers are burdened with student loan debt and that interest rates are continuing to creep up a little bit. And then also some other trends that the urbanization of young people today want to live downtown. And so this, all of this affects suburbia and all of it affects the growth of single-family homes. So we see a little cooling of that happening now. We think next year will, that will continue, and so that will dampen the growth. But the prospects are good in transportation, in non-building, water and wastewater. Those areas are going to continue to grow for we're pretty bullish on those areas. Well, and does that have anything to do with last year's passage of the Water Resources Development Act or this year's consideration again of the surface transportation funding package? Sure. Well, WERDA was a big deal. The Water Resources Development Act was a big deal. And it's one example where Congress actually, in a bipartisan manner, worked on something that made a difference. You know, our infrastructure in this country, particularly what you don't see, what's underground, is aging and is overtaxed. In other words, it was never designed for the loads that we're putting on it. And so much of this infrastructure has to be replaced and expanded. And what Florida does is provide some funding to do that. We're also pretty excited about some public-private funding opportunities that are cropping up on water projects. So really what you don't see, what's beneath you, what's moving the floodwaters out, the stormwaters out, and what's moving the wastewater out are precast concrete structures that are designed to do that. And we're excited because uh, WERDA helps us fund expansion of those systems and get them into the 21st century. Now, when it comes to bridges, though, the work that you do is overhead too, right? Correct. Yes. And, you know, when you look at bridges, if you look at the American Society of Civil Engineers, as you know, they put forth a report card every year on our nation's infrastructure. And if you look at what they say about bridges, so many of the bridges in this country are old, are aging, and are deficient. And they need to be expanded, replaced altogether. So a lot of ways you can do this, the smaller bridges can be replaced with box culverts, those systems that are put end-to-end and traffic can go over. 
or then if you get into a situation where the bridge that has to have heavy, heavy highway loads, the pre-stress industry is making a tremendous strides in, in making the beams, the pre-stressed concrete beams to cover those loads. So a lot of opportunity there and a lot of need there, and uh, precast is the answer. We've been talking about a transportation infrastructure funding package for a few years now here in Washington, and Congress, just down the street from where I am right now, they're holding their hearings again. I assume that you're anxious and your members are anxious to have this thing done and out the door. Well, absolutely. And look, talk is cheap. And Congress is very, very good at having hearings and talking about it. And they're also very good about agreeing that something needs to be done. Where they have trouble is actually funding something that makes sense. Here's the problem. State need a long-term funding mechanism so that they can plan. This business kicking the can down the road by, oh, well, we'll just fund it for another couple of years, or we'll just do a continuing resolution. These are band-aids that don't work. What has to happen is a multi-year comprehensive transportation and infrastructure bill, highway bill, has to happen so that your five, six years of funding is committed these states can see what the money flow is, they know it's coming, and they can plan. Very difficult for a state to plan a project if they don't know if it's going to be funded in year three, four, or five. So Congress has got to come up with a multi-year solution, and it's been too long. Just doing continuing resolutions is not going to get it. There has to be some leadership. I think there's will on both sides of the aisle to get this done, but between will to get it done and the actual political realities of actually being able to work together and compromise to get it done it is a lot, a lot of area. And um, we're concerned that Congress simply can't get this handled. And certainly we need to have it done this year. Are there any policy issues you'd like to see addressed once that bill does come out of Congress? Well, we are always interested in technology. For instance, precast paving slabs is fairly new technology. It is the answer to repairing the nation's highways. Our highways are in dire need of repair and expansion, and precast paving slabs provides a very efficient manner to repair the nation's highways with very short lane closure time windows, hours instead of days. Also, you can embed technology in precast paving slabs. It's fascinating to see what is available. Conductive charging systems, we can actually charge electric vehicles as they travel by embedding these inductive charging systems in the panel. We can put sensors in the panels that in in a remote area of the highway, if a vehicle leaves the highway, authorities can realize that and get some help there. So there's a, a lot of exciting new technology that is out there with smart pavement and smart roads. And I think that has to be built in to any funding mechanism. If you could speak to every member of Congress on this issue, that being transportation infrastructure funding, through this podcast, what would you say to them about the importance of getting something done this year? Well, I appreciate the fact that the case has been made Congress understands there's a strong need, 
And I think what Congress has to do is get creative in terms of how we can fund this, do it for a long term, and move on. Again, we continue to debate and talk about something and then do a Band-Aid fix. That's really got to stop. And if I could tell Congress one thing, I would say get a long-term solution together and get an up or down vote on the thing and let's get it done. So I guess I would say to them, let's do it. Let's get it done for the long term and let's stop the Band-Aid approach. Senator Tom Carper is the ranking member on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. Next week, we'll talk with him about his opening statement at a recent hearing on infrastructure. People ask me what I like most about my job. I say, I like getting things done. They say, you must be really frustrated. <laughs> and so, some days I am. But uh, on this committee, we actually do uh, get things done. And we're looking forward to uh, building on uh, what we did last year with water infrastructure. Looking forward to doing something uh, equally substantial on uh, service transportation this year. That's Wednesday, March 27th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.